Imagination will carry us to worlds that never were. But without it, we go nowhere. Den interplanetære podcasten. Utforskning av rom til fordel for hele menneskeheten. Dine verter i England og Norge. Med Tjuløser og Chris Garn. Oh yeah, baby, Carl Sagan. Carlos. It's Carl Sagan's birthday on the 9th of November. Wonderful, man. Wonderful. They should set a man to be celebrated. Yes, yes, yes. Wonderful, yeah, indeed. Absolutely, absolutely. Carl Sagan, what an awesome fella. The finest of men. Very, very cool. Not only Carl Sagan's birthday, it's also the 15th anniversary of the launch of ESA's Venus Express. Nice. Mm. Mm. Uh, but there's so much to talk about this week. Oh, yeah. I've got a pretty crazy guest as well to to stick on at the end. Yeah. Tim Chrisman. Oh. And he's the founder and executive director of Foundation for the Future, Ooh. which you can find at www.climb2.space. That's the number two. Is that all about the, the plan of, uh, you know, putting a cable up into space? Is that is that what he does? It, it is, yeah. So he is talking about space elevators. Wow. Uh, that is amazing stuff. Yeah, he, he puts forward a case for it, and I, I, can't, I kind of enjoy the case. But uh, we'll talk about that after, after the interview plays, which is obviously later in the show, old bean. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, though. Well, well I'll tell you what's exciting. Yep. This week was the release of a paper that revealed, for the first time, a uh, an FRB captured within the Milky Way. Incredible. Since the start of the podcast, FRBs have become more and more of a thing in astronomy. And it amazes me that in the year 2020, yet there's still all these amazing discoveries going on in space. I just think I just think that's really cool and that we're making real progress in trying to find out what these things are. And the more we look at them, the more crazy these objects become. Just for the folks at home, would that be a fast radio burst? A fast radio burst, yeah. Although I'm not quite sure whether this was a fast radio burst. It's not as powerful as they normally are, but that might just be the fact that the only ones we see from distant galaxies have to be powerful for them to arrive here. And so yeah. if there was weaker ones like this one out in further galaxies, we might not detect them because they're just too weak. And when I say weak, these things are absolutely ridiculous, like trillions and trillions of times more powerful than the sun and stuff like that and would power mankind for eternity in a fraction of a second. What? That's how much energy is being released. <laughs> they're just they're just ridiculous. They're ridiculous things. Yeah, so it's it's been detected a fast radio burst has been detected within the Milky Way. It's so intriguing because it means that there's just so much more information about what they potentially are. So they they know that this particular fast radio burst actually came from a magnetar that they know about. And this magnetar, SGR 1935 plus 2154. Catchy, catchy. But what is a magnetar? What is a magnetar, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, a magnetar is is a type of neutron star. So imagine a neutron star. When it's formed, it may actually inherit some of the magnetic properties of its host star. But remember, a neutron star is something that's like two times the mass of the sun. 
And it's shrunk down to the size of Manhattan. Yeah, I like to go back to the little teaspoon, teaspoon of, of matter. Teaspoon weighs Everest, yeah. yes. Yeah, I love it every time. Absolutely every time. ludicrous thing in the first place. But can you imagine that the star itself is spinning? And just like an ice skater, that when they're spinning on the ice with their arms out, when they squeeze themselves up into a little ball, they spin faster and faster and faster. Amazing. Because of the conservation of momentum. Of course, yes. which you know all about, Chris. Yeah, well, that's it. Um, that was my, my, my paper I wrote on it. So imagine a star twice the size of the sun shrinking down to Manhattan. It's going to have quite a lot of spin. Yeah. More spin than an ice skater. Definitely, definitely more. That's what my paper was about. <laughs> Your paper was, does a neutron star spin faster than an ice skater? And the answer was and yes. And your conclusion one, yes, it, yes, it does. Yes, it really does. So <laughs> this neutron star, imagine it was this unbelievably dense object and so dense that instead of being made of atoms it's made of just the cores of atoms and so it could be considered like an atom in itself like this ginormous atom just the the just the core of a ginormous atom uh and it's just very very dense but spinning very very fast and this kind of metallic neutron material all sloshing around inside Mm. and the way that it's sloshing around starts to act like a dynamo and this dynamo obviously builds up all these electric fields and magnetic fields to the point where you get this ridiculously magnetic object so if it's spinning fast enough it creates this this uh, dynamo effect just like the Earth does. You know, the Earth yeah. is spinning and because it's got this molten core, it, it creates a magnetic field because there's these crystalline molten iron mm. <laughs> rotating in the centre of the Earth creating magnetic fields, which is, which is incredible in itself. But imagine that on a much more ridiculous level where you've got a smaller object but much, much, much more dense and made of a much more mysterious substance in the middle of it and and it, and it's generating these ridiculous magnetic fields the 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 magnetic field is so strong that atoms themselves you, you think of the classical view of an atom yeah where you've got the nucleus and the cloud of electrons making a ball shape well in near a neutron star the magnetic field lines stretch those atoms out so they look more like spaghetti Ooh. and it does things like splits x-ray photons in half and then merges them back together that's how powerful these magnetic fields are one of the effects of these magnetic fields is that all this energy is leaking out of the neutron star and slowing its spin down right neutron stars are known for their regularity but the regularity of this of the magnetar has been ruined by these magnetic fields that that are sort of erupting absolutely everywhere. And just like the sun has solar flares, they think that these magnetars have these flare ups of, as well, where you might get a crack in the surf at the surface as it's spinning around, and then this and all these uh, magnetic fields suddenly there's a crack in the surface, and loads of X rays escape. And so there's all sorts of stuff going on. I mean, when you start thinking about neutron stars, they're just ridiculous because the surface is spinning so fast you get relativistic effects and the gravity is so much you get relativistic effects. So everything is crazy, crazy complicated 
and just extreme. A lot of the the things that we're talking about here, a lot of the sort of features of your magnetar sound <laughs> uh, similar to what a black hole can do as well. Like, because we talk about spaghetti, and I didn't just get excited there because I really like pasta. It's because I was thinking about spaghettification uh, when you enter a black hole. Um, and then also, you know, about relativistic um, effects. So basically, is it somewhere yeah. between, could you say it's somewhere between a neutron star and a black hole? Like more, like more powerful than one, well, less no, powerful yeah. than the other? Well, um, I, don't, I don't think, no, because it's not like, I tell you what is a sort of intermediary stage between a neutron star and a black hole is a thing known as a blitzar. Oh my goodness. So a blitzar is is a pulsar that's spinning that's really massive pulsar that's spinning fast enough that the centrifugal force is is preventing it from collapsing into a black hole. Wow. So like you can imagine that it's spinning around and so it's not quite collapsing into a black hole, but as the spin slows down, eventually it suddenly goes, whoa, here we go. We're, we're, we're turning into a black hole. <laughs> yep, here and, we that, go. and that that is that's actually a uh, a candidate for other types of FRBs. Maybe it's these blitzars that just as they kind of get to the end of their life they sort of collapse into a black hole but yeah no the the spaghettification of atoms is caused by magnetic fields rather than the spaghettification that that is caused by black holes which is caused by tidal forces i.e as your feet approach a black hole the gravity that they're experiencing is actually far greater than your head and so you you get you get pulled apart, which mm. actually happens near any gravitational body. You get gravitational forces. If the moon gets too close to the Earth, it it would get torn apart, mm. and they think like Phobos will get torn apart as it gets as it gets nearer to Mars, um, and that's what causes r- rings around planets. Often, I think it's called the Roche limit, where uh, a, where an object gets too close, it will get it will get torn apart by tidal forces. Same with black holes. But if a black hole is big enough like these enormous ones at the center of galaxies, you know, supermassive black holes. If it's a big enough one, you don't get spaghettification because the gradient of gravity isn't as high. So in actual fact, you could approach a black hole, one of these supermassive black holes, and not get spaghettified and not even notice that you're crossing the event horizon. What? That goes against everything I've learned. I know. But the the thing is, like, you know... I've got quite small, sm- I've got quite small feet, so if I got dragged there a little bit, I you know make my feet a little bit bigger. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose you could avoid spaghettification if you if you go if you go flat on to the gravitational field. Okay, <laughs> so I'll that you're not tr- sort of going yeah, spaghetti shaped in the first place. If you yeah. go pancake shaped in the first place, you might actually be all right. I'm going to try that then. I don't think heading towards a black hole or even a pulsar is a particularly clever thing to do. No, I don't either, really. I <laughs> In was fact, joshing. I think you probably would get. I think you probably would get slightly spaghettified as you w- approached a pulsar as well, because or a yeah you know, neutron star, because the the gravitational forces on that are pretty extreme. So mild spaghettification. Mild spaghettification, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be nice. But the magnet but but undoubtedly the magnetic field would kill you first because 
all your atoms would have been spaghettified, and God knows what that does to chemistry. Mm. Presumably, all chemistry breaks down at that point, and so just doesn't work. Mm, yeah, I, I think it needs to, we need to rethink this, don't we? If we're going there, we're going to have to have a little think about it. <laughs> well, well I, I, it's actually really interesting how magnetars were actually first discovered. So they were actually discovered by accident in 1979. The year March, I was born? 1979. A month before I was born. That, wow, there you go. Mm. So magnetars, yeah, the, the knowledge of magnetars is the same age as you, yeah. Chris. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Just a little bit older. So, um, yeah, the the Venera 11 and Venera 12 um, Russian spacecraft had dropped off the probes that went into Venus, but those two space probes carried on a, a sort of elliptical orbit in the solar system. Mm. And they were the first to receive this pulse of gamma radiation. Obviously, this radiation level was absolutely ridiculously high, and it saturated the equipment very, very quickly. And then it went on to hit loads of other spacecraft. This was a sort of pulse of high energetic or hard gamma rays, 100 times more intense than any previous uh, gamma ray burst Hmm. that they'd ever detected. And everyone's thinking, what the heck is that and they lasted just two tenths of a second so this isn't to be confused with fast radio bursts but it's a very similar phenomena Mm. um uh, of just you know very very high intense light basically um but they were followed by a fainter glow of lower energy uh gamma rays and and x-rays and then that uh sort of faded over three minutes so there's this one big pulse and then some pulses of other information um and that period, um, sort of the oscillation was about eight seconds. And that, that was the first clue about what these things were. Chris Thompson, who was at high school around in, the, in 1979, so not as young as you, hmm. uh, he went on to write a paper with this guy called Rob Duncan at Princeton University. And, and that was 1992. And they were the people that coined the phrase magnetar and that was when i was at school a high school so i mean you know the story of the magnetar the story of me is just running like side by side it's linked with your life isn't it really? <laughs> so they they'd been thinking theoretically about what happens in neutron stars and how they inherit magnetic fields from their parent star and then how this rapidly spinning liquid crazy dense matter crystals all sloshing around creating all these ridiculous um magnetic fields so they'd been and they'd been working out you know what what that actually meant and they realized that that it would slow the that it would slow the uh, neutron star down the spin down but would do it in this really erratic fashion so neutron stars are known for being these amazing clocks that you can use them as standard candles and sort of say, you know, that that is a neutron star and, and its pulsing is actually, they're thinking of using them for GPS. But magnetars are absolutely completely different. They're, they're, they're neutron stars, but they're kind of out of control a little bit because of these ridiculous magnetic fields. So, But, but this eight seconds was a clue because it, that's the sort of glitching speed of these neutron stars. And so that that was uh, uh, one of the things that they kind of linked up and said, ah, that 1979 event was a magnetar, and it all sort of tied in, and everyone went, whoa, hmm. that's really cool. 
And uh, so, yes, they, they, over the years, they found about 30 different magnetars in, in the Milky Way or thereabouts. I've just learned something new today, which I really like I completely. That's uh, magnetars has entered my uh, entered my my knowledge base, which is fantastic. It's just uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Neutron stars, other than black holes, are the most extreme objects in the universe. Hmm. But the good thing about neutron stars is is that you can actually see them, whereas black holes, by their very nature, you can't see what's beyond the event horizon. Whereas neutron stars that can obviously be pulsars, magnetars, blitzars, all mm. you know, all the sort of variations of these crazy objects. They are physically there to actually study and see, which I think is really exciting because there's presumably so much crazy physics going on, including, you know, sort of particle physics, the fact that you've gone down to the neutrons and, and maybe at the core of these neutron stars are sort of quark soups and stuff like that. So... Hmm. It's a real, it, it's where cosmology, the sort of study of the massive universe, is also the study of particle physics as well. Mm, quark soup, though. Mm. 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 Oh. I suppose you can actually make quark soup, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, you that, can. That, that, sort of, that sort of cheese, couldn't you? Yeah. Is it a British thing, quark? Quark. It's a sort of soft cheese, isn't it? But, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, I would say it is. Yeah. Mmm, yeah. cheese yeah. soup. I don't know. I would have to, mmm, uh, cheese soup, quark <laughs> soup. Might make quark soup. <laughs> now, now we've thought about it. <laughs> what about fast radio bursts? So, yeah, fast radio bursts. We did a sort of big dive on podcast 137. Um, I remember it Not well. you and I, Chris, but uh, I know. myself and Jamie. The wonderful Jamie myself Franklin. Myself and Jamie. Yes. Oh, wonderful Jamie Franklin, who's got some amazing news. Ooh. Jamie, what a ledge. Total ledge. We, we've been talking about them because there's been some little sort of snippets of uh, FRB information coming in. So FRBs were sort of first spotted in 2001 in Australia by the Parks Radio Dish. Mm-hmm. And it was just like this one burst. It went, yet it was incredibly powerful. And it was tracked down to some region of the small Megalanic cloud. Megalanic? Megalanic? Magellanic. 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 Yeah, yeah. Presumably it's named after Magellan. Magellanic. Magellanic. Magellanic cloud. I don't know. (laughs) But when they looked, there's nothing to see there. They couldn't see what was causing it. There was no optical gamma ray, infrared radiation or anything. So it was incredibly powerful. Then they thought they were spotting loads of these things. There were 16 more in 2010. Uh, But it turned out that... That was all people opening their microwave ovens. No. So when you open the door when it's on. Yeah. So the microwave <laughs> oven has a magnetron tube, which should have been a clue, right? Yeah. Uh, that's got a magneton tube in it. And um, when it when it's powering off, it releases a fast radio burst that these very hypersensitive uh, radio amazing. telescopes are picking up. And, and so they thought we were getting yeah, like loads of these uh, FRBs and what was actually <laughs> happening is people's yeah. microchips were ready. Microwave, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I know, unlucky, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you'd written like about five or six papers only to find that out. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but in 2015, uh, Paul Schultz of the McGill University in Canada found 10 non-periodically repeated fast radio pulses in the archival data of the Arecibo radio telescope, including FRB 121102, uh, detected in 2012. So 12 is always the year, the first two digits of the year of the yeah. uh, fast radio burst. And that was the first repeater discovered. So this first repeating FRB uh, gave astronomers the chance to kind of hunt down the source. Uh, and they realized it's a star-forming low-metallicity dwarf galaxy located roughly 3 billion light-years away. Wow. By looking really carefully, they found this dimmer, persistent radio source in that region. And that was the, a real massive hint that uh, FRB, FRBs were powered by magnetars. Mm. Um, and so, so that's when they're kind of really homing in on it. It's just amazing. Um, and they also realised that, that, that it couldn't be like a cataclysmic event either. So it couldn't be two neutron stars crashing into each other because it wouldn't repeat, obviously, no. unless you had a kind of uh, neutron star gun. Firing neutron star bullets. Or a game of neutron star pool. It seems unlikely. <laughs> and and also, another repeater was found, which ruled out aliens, of course, because it could have been aliens trying to communicate with us, which yeah. is, as you know, it never is. No. <laughs> Apart from the with the wow signal. The wow signal, I'm still holding out for that one. Yeah, well, maybe. Just maybe. <laughs> It's really tantalising that we found finally found uh, an FRB in the in our own galaxy. Yeah, and it is a magnetar. They know that this object is a magnetar, and that they've that they've actually had this ridiculous signal. So uh, we should actually say how they actually got this signal. So this this signal was on the twenty seventh of April, and it was first picked up by NASA's Swift t- Telescope. So that orbits twice as high as the ISS. So, in fact, the the Swift telescope didn't actually spot the uh, the FRB. It just uh, it just it, it it received this kind of just a normal gamma ray stream from the um, from this magnetar. So when I say normal, obviously it's not normal. So this thing's like pumping out gamma rays, just like neutron stars do. Yeah. Uh, and then the next day, the Canadian Chime Telescope, which looks like a bunch of discarded curved metal fencing parts <laughs> just lying on the ground. They're so messy, aren't they, the Canadians? I think of Canadians as being very neat. Mm. They just apologise a lot as well. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I made this a little bit messy. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. They picked up this much more exciting, much more intense burst of energy. But even more excitingly, so did this uh, radio telescope in that's basically two parts, one in Utah, one in California. And all these are are just metal poles with, and I kid you not, a cake tin on the top, apparently. <laughs> what and an that, actual... That's what these telescopes are. Uh, <laughs> literally, a metal pole with a cake tin on top. This always uh, comes and, back to food. Um, yeah, Why that, does they... it always come back to food? <laughs> I don't, well, because obviously astronomers are greedy. They yes, just sit must by be. a telescope eating cake. So they have lots of cake tins lying Re- around. Ready. And yeah. uh, So they actually saw this big burst as well. 
and uh, and so were able to say, yep, this this definitely happened. Uh, and the FRB was associated with all these weaker signals uh, coming off the off this magnetar. So it contained all this information that you wouldn't normally get because this these weaker signals that come associated with that obviously don't survive the intergalactic distances these FRBs have normally gone over. So what you're saying is we're getting it we're getting it at a sort of higher a higher power than we would get from the outside of the uh, of the galaxies. It's now because it's within ours, we're seeing a lot more of the of the energy from it and able to know more about it as well, which is which is obviously the the, the aim. That's great. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just the fact that it, we we've got something that's that's more evidence that it's a magnetar that these magnetars a that they that magnetars really are a thing and that they're following the kind of maths the sort of bottom up approach so that all these hype you know hypothetical and and theoretical um the maths is sort of coinciding with what astronomers are seeing and I love mm. that I think that that's science that it's absolute absolute best peak science but the only caveat is because i because I, I was when i first started reading i was thinking well that that's it then so frbs are just mag well i'm gonna say are just frbs are magnetars that's what they are but this burst apparently was thousands of times less energetic than these other frbs that we've been seeing and some of these distant repeaters aren't as easily explained uh, as coming from magnetars so it's not case closed so so we know that some of these frbs are almost certainly magnetars but maybe not all of them you know they could be these blitzars they might be dark matter induced collapse of pulsars they might um, the most speculative is the explosive decay of axion mini clusters which is axions being a kind of well, an axion is a, a sort of hypothetical elementary particle uh, and would explain quite a lot of things about the universe if they were true. But, of course, no one's ever seen them, so that's that. And it's the same with cosmic strings as well. It could be cosmic strings uh, interacting with plasma and all those kind of things. So it's it, there's, a, there's a whole load of speculative uh, things about FRBs. But I suppose, you know, eventually... The mass will turn out, and I think it will be. I think it will turn out to be all neutron star related. You've got these crazy objects that are capable of this amount of energy and putting out this amount of energy, and 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 I think that's what it will all end up being. That virtually all the the, the FRBs we we see will be from various types of neutron star activity. One of them being magnetars, maybe blitzars. Who knows? Oh, it's just mind blowing. Or stuff. hyper flares, yeah, hyper flares, absolutely fantastic. I mean, these... Just really, just mind blowing stuff, and it's it's incredible to learn about. Really, is fantastical. But, but I just love that this is actually all quite new as well. That that astronomers are sort of discovering all this stuff now. This is all being discovered now. Yeah, How cool is that? Yeah, totally. In our in our uh, in our lifetime and. Yeah, it's things like it seems like that this sort of knowledge and discovery is accelerating as well, which is 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 just it's amazingly exciting to see what's going to be coming over the horizon as we just get better and better at these things. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I suppose now we're looking for them as well. 
and and we build better and better radio telescopes and all these enormous radio telescopes that are, that are coming online and presumably mm. better spacecraft as well. We'll start to see some amazing stuff, I'm sure. Yes. It's going to be, it's going to be a, an amazing... The next 20 years in astronomy, I, I'm pretty certain, are going to be absolutely incredible. And the, well, next, 20 years of the uh, next 20 years of the Interplanetary Podcast will be similarly uh, exciting. Well, then. yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> it, 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 they, the, the episodes write themselves. Premium content. <laughs> yeah, imagine if we, you know, if you, you know, if you were stuck doing a podcast about, I don't know, what, what's a dead, what's a dead subject that has phrenology, phrenology. Yeah, if you would. <laughs> phrenology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting for a few episodes, and then it'd be like, well, what, what do we talk about now? Yeah, we'll just have to go back to the beginning. Uh, so it could also be um, Betamax uh, videos. Any new discoveries about Betamax videos today? No, sorry, Matt. No, nothing no, nothing no. on the horizon. <laughs> Actually, do, do you know, because people might say, well, what's the point of knowing about FRBs? The thing I love about FRBs, by the way, is the fact that they almost act like a, a beam of light that goes through the universe. And you're able to sort of see how the universe is made up between you and the magnetar mm. this this thing called tomography you know when you see um um medical programs where they're doing slices through the brain using mri scans mm. it's it's a bit like that that this these magnetars are are sort of revealing space in in these cross-section uh slices as it goes as, as they shine through the as they shine through the galaxy or shine through the universe, Amazing. so that you can actually see much more about what the universe is made of and how it's made and and all and, and its structure. So they're hmm. really useful things because it's going to sort of maybe like uh, help for some of the theories, like string theory. You know, like really, it's, it, these things, the more we know about these, the closer we could get to having a you know a theory of everything. <laughs> well well yeah or, or certainly what they can do is 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 rule out certain theories of everything yes yeah, because yeah. It, it's like if if they behave in a certain way and that doesn't fit the the theory then it's like bye bye theory yeah you know and 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 that and that's that mm. or you know or you have to modify the theory so that it takes these crazy objects into account i mean yeah they're, they're like laboratories they're like laboratories that are happening out in space doing crazy physics for you yeah right there the universe has given us massive hints oh yeah because if they weren't there you wouldn't be able to know all these things yeah. god the universe is absolutely ace it's so good isn't so it? cool uh i'm gonna come back to earth a little bit mm -hmm. or nearer to earth and talk about a couple of um, space missions to the moon. Cool. Love it. Which I think, actually, the, the, they're both very exciting indeed. The first one that I, I, I read about this week was the United Arab Emirates are going, are going to the moon. So they've already they've sent off, obviously, their spacecraft off to Mars, which is pretty exciting. Mm. But they announced this week that they're going to build uh, a rover, a 10-kilogram rover, that's significantly lighter than the Chang'e 4, for example, which is about 10 times bigger. 
Mm. They kind of called this the Rashid hmm. after Rashid, uh, after Sheikh Rashid bin Said Al Maktoum, who was the ruler of uh, Dubai uh, in the creation of the United Arab Emirates back in 1971. Yes, uh, they're going to get an inter- international partner to to launch and land it, but they're going to hundred percent build it in the United Arab Emirates. So, that, of course, they're really building building their skill set up so uae are really really serious about their space ambitions you know in the last decade or so they've gone from nothing to being like a proper player yeah in in space you know it's really really impressive Mm. so yeah it's it's it it, they, they hope to land it in 2024 which of course is when everyone else seems to be going as well it's going to be busy up ESA, there. <laughs> it really is actually we should we should mention artemis mm. and and of course congratulations to joe biden for uh winning the american election or or at least it looks like he's won the uh, American election. Everyone's he's won it. it <laughs> he's won it. Well, he has won it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> congratulations to Joe Biden. Very I much so. I think, yeah. unfortunately, that might – well, uh, according to Eric Berger, it was the end of Jim Bridenstine anyway, but it's obviously almost certainly the end of poor old Jim Bridenstine. And, of course, mm. I suppose it could be the end of Artemis as well. Although Joe Biden might think to himself, actually, do you know what? This might look good on, under my presidency as well to have. I the think that uh, all I happen. Think we never didn't. He never really had much of an interest during Obama years. But I think, um, apart from the fact that obviously a lot more uh, resources going to go into likes of climate change and obviously COVID and stuff like that with regards to science um, uh, plans, I think he. I, I've got a good feeling he's still going to be very positive towards this. I know it's like one of the few things that has been beneficial in the Trump administration, but I think he'd be he'd be silly not to carry it on because the rest of the world is just going to start progressing so quickly that you know he doesn't want to end up at the back of the race on this one. There has been something to be said about the kind of Trump administration's um, kick-starting, I guess, the Artemis and, and going back to the moon and making it a thing. Mm. But And now it's in play, I suppose. It's almost a little bit unstoppable. I don't think it's going to happen in 24. Uh, uh, well, I don't think I don't think humans are going to be landing on the moon in 24, but I do think we're going to see an absolute ton of missions to the moon, that the mm. moon is suddenly... Like it's been opened up. Well, a it's been opened up by commercial space anyway. The fact that people can get on a Falcon Heavy, for example, and send a reasonably large payload to the moon. Uh, so yeah, that that it's it should be very very exciting. So that you know, I'm really looking forward to the next few years. But before then, and the one thing that I really hadn't clocked until I was uh, reading this is the Chinese plan to go to the moon. So this mm. is the Chang'e 5. So obviously the Chang'e 4 last year was absolutely epic because it it, yeah. it went to it went to the far side of the moon with some potatoes. Uh, the first ob- the, the first, you know, <laughs> with a, you know, the first object ever to do it mm. and land there safely and it's been working there ever since and doing amazing science including potentially growing things on on the moon for the first time which is amazing. Yeah. But um uh, this this is a mission that um, has been delayed from 2017. So the Long March 5, 
which was the success story of of December 2019. Um, when they uh, and since then, obviously since they launched in December the 19th, they they've sent an orbiter to to and lander and rover to Mars, and they've tested their manned capsule with it. So the Long March five seems to be all fixed now after its after its an after its disaster uh, that stopped the Chang'e five launching in 2017. But what's going to mm. be amazing about this mission? It's going to be over but before the end of the year. We're not talking about one of these missions where we talk about it and it launches and then we have to wait 10 years before we get anything. <laughs> um, this is like, this will, this will be over by Christmas. So we'll know whether this worked or not. And it's very, very ambitious and it's super exciting. Yeah. So you've got Chang'e 5. It includes a lander and an ascent vehicle, an orbiter and a returner. So this is so it's going to go to the moon. So it's going to launch on the twenty fourth of November from Wenchang, and of course we'll have the extra bonus excitement about whether bits of the Long March Five will land on American cities, <laughs> like the last one, which which narrowly missed a couple of American cities and landed on the coast of Africa somewhere. Oops, which is just insane. I mean, literally amazing. I mean, the Chinese just don't give a monkeys about where their bits of rocket are going to land, including <laughs> on their own people. It's like literally mental. So the Ch- <laughs> so we get that bonus. We get the bonus of the excitement of possible. Are know, we going to die? Possible deaths and stuff. <laughs> are we? Are we all going to die? <laughs> oh no! It's landed on a it's landed on a nuclear power station. That would be unlucky. I have to say. Oh shit! Yeah. Um, <laughs> Excuse my language. So, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> so Changi Five, uh, yeah, is going. So it it will go to the moon. So it launches on the twenty fourth of November. It'll take a few days to get to the moon mm. after being, you know, in a, in a low Earth orbit. It'll it'll go off to the moon. It will. Um, Go to a place called the Mons Rumpke. This is what Harold Heisinger of the University of Munster said. Yeah. He said, the landing site was extremely wisely picked. And 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 we'll get on to why in a second, but Mons Rumpke, a 1,300-meter-high volcanic complex in the northern region of Oceanus mm. Procellarum. So that's where it's going to land. And then it's going to drill two meters down, scoop up two kilograms of moon regolith with its robotic arm, place it into a canister on the ascender vehicle. And then it's the ascender vehicle. And by the way, all this has to be done in the 14 Earth days um, because one day on the moon lasts 14 Earth days. And then you go into super cold nighttime. It like the the nighttime on on the moon is brutal, and the UAE uh, rover probably won't survive it. So that's only going to be a fourteen day mission. Mm. But this one is going to scoop up some regolith as quickly as possible, and then the ascender vehicle go back into lunar orbit and rendezvous with the returner craft, a bit like the Apollo eleven mission in the same way that. Buzz and Neil took off and rendezvoused with Michael Collins up in up in lunar orbit. Mm. This is going to do a similar kind of trick, which of course for the Chinese is brilliant because it means that they get to practice that type of maneuver yeah. for their human missions 
uh, which they plan to do in about ten years' time. Fair play. This would be a Starting brilliant, uh, just be a brilliant room in the Crystal Maze. You know, just all the things that you've got to do when you're in there. Come out, come out! <laughs> like, just like loads of Chinese guys poking through the hole, just telling them what to do. Get, dig down, dig down, two meters. Yeah, with your robotic arm. I think you need to use the robotic arm. Admit, yeah, it is. It is. And uh, so we'll we'll wait to see. But the best bit about this is obviously this all happens really quickly. So that the Changi Five, then if it's if it's successful in scooping up rock and then getting it to the returner is going to come back to Earth and parachute into Inner Mongolia by December. So we'll know whether this was successful before Christmas. So the Chinese are actually going to go and get some moon rock before Christmas. How cool is that? Cracking Christmas present. The Chinese are the only nation that aren't allowed to ask for the Apollo moon rock. So if if you were to do write one of your brilliant papers again, Chris, yeah. and, and this time you were to do it on on Moon Regolith and you had a really great idea, mm. you could apply to NASA and say, I really want some moon rock uh, because I want to do this experiment. And they'll look at it and go, yeah, yeah, that's a great experiment. Here you are. Right? Yeah. Chinese can't do that. So this this these lunar samples are going to come back to the Chinese Academy of Sciences National Astronomical Observatory, or NAOC as you know it in Beijing. Yes, and um, and a, a, a small amount of it will also go somewhere else for safety, and some will go for display, but it's probably all going to stay in China. But well, that's brilliant for them. So, that's actually great. You know, they're just sort of like going, ha, we've got our own now, <laughs> sort of thing. It's we haven't great. got our own yeah. now. We don't need don't yours. Don't need yours. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if they're going to open it up to other nations except America. We'll have to wait and see what actually happens. But it, it's super significant because it, it comes from a different part of the moon. So it's this is the reason why this area is really well chosen because – They'll be digging down, and this is much more of a sort of modern, a newer lava flow. And so from 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 this regolith, they should be able to tell how recently the moon was active. So if the moon was active in, the, say, the last two billion years, it it really will be a very significant story about the, the history of the moon. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and the so history this, of, of this, Earth um, as well, you know, that, that, that says a lot more about, about yeah, life. Well, well about, yeah, yeah, it's a... Uh, no, absolutely. We're not only... Not, not, yeah, not only our own system, apparently, uh, that this, the, you know, this 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 moon rock can tell us about Earth and the moon, but it's, it can also help age the, the other planets. Mm. So one of the things that they, one of the things they use to date planets is how many craters are on the surface. But of course, with lava flows and stuff like that, it affects how many craters you actually see. Mm. So getting material from that exact spot where you can count craters and you can work out when those lava flows were, you've kind of got another reference point for how many, how many craters you get for a certain aged object so that they can, you know, date other objects from their craterage more accurately. Fantastic. So, yeah, you know, this could be, it's a very important mission, but I think it's, I think in some ways, other than maybe the uh, Crew Dragon mission, 
And of course, this second crew dragon mission is, is just probably just as exciting. Mm. Um, this is the most exciting space mission of the year. In fact, it may even be more exciting. I'm, I must admit, bringing back Moon Rock for the first time since the Apollo missions is unbelievably exciting. It's incredible. So the Chinese gave us the very <laughs> they gave, Chinese gave us the very very worst start to 2020, <laughs> but they might actually go some way to redeeming themselves <laughs> and giving us an all right end. We go the, like that, ah, you know, you you brought some moon rock back. Don't worry about that whole pandemic thing. <laughs> 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 well the worst can you imagine if they bring moon rock back and and there's a deadly virus inside it <laughs> yeah i was just thinking that then i was just going oh, i was just no. going a little bit of a, a message from the uh from the from the chinese space uh space organization sort of going look yeah. we've got another <laughs> bit of bad news here <laughs> sorry <laughs> you know that last virus <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing but it is and the uh, fact that we all know about Eddie, it by the end of the year is superb like that is brilliant we'll be literally be talking about it within uh, weeks yeah i i know i really i really can't wait i really can't wait for that i i, I just hadn't clocked what on a what that it was all going to be over so quickly i i love it because normally these missions take forever yeah yeah you know to actually actually bring results uh, and then actually even longer even when the mission has finished some of the results you don't get back for decades as people pour through all the data. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's, it's really exciting. Um, which actually is the case for this one. I'm sure that the 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 moon rock they bring back will be studied for decades. Yeah. Um. Uh, Chris, would you like to hear my interview with Tim Christmas? I would love to, Matthew. Well, I'm going to play it for you now. Oh, great. A kutai. The interplanetary podcast putting the ace. Back into space. So I'm joined on the podcast by Tim Chrisman, who is the founder of a foundation for the future. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> um, so you're you're in you're in DC, I hear at the moment. That's correct, is it? I am. I am. I'm uh, about eight feet underground to protect myself um, from getting too close to any voting. <laughs> so this we're, we're doing this on the Friday. Hopefully, this will be out on the Monday. So we may know the result by Monday. Who knows? And who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, uh, right. So, well, first things first. Tell us a little bit about the. Uh, tell us a little bit about the foundation for the future and and exactly what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, gladly. So the foundation for the future is a single issue uh, advocacy group where devoted to getting uh, governments, in this case, the US government to treat infrastructure investment equally across all the domains humans are in. So we have water, land, air infrastructure. We need space infrastructure. Um, we shouldn't be depending on single use rockets, uh, space stations that are 20 plus years old. We want a ecosystem of support so entrepreneurs and uh, workers can just show up, plug and play, just like you would do if you were building a house or starting a business here on the ground. So is there, is there a historical context to that? Is there, is there a time where someone like you would have been setting up a foundation for the future and talking about Going to the going to the Americas, for example, something like that. 
Yeah, so it, it does have a lot of um, parallels to colonial um, exploration and development. Um, we have noted that early on and the, the baggage that's around that and have tried to lean into it in many ways because every time there's been a historical analog to this, whether it's colonial times or just hunter-gatherers traveling out to go find new lands, it's always been on the backs of hurting someone or something else. And now we have a chance to basically do it right. Uh, we can invest in a new environment where there is risk, but it's to the people going. And so there are a lot of analogies, whether it's colonial times, uh, the American frontier, even things like the Panama Canal or the transatlantic cable. Um, these are things that required more or less private advocacy for public action. So, 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 what is the friction? I mean, so why, why, why do organisations like yourself have to exist? If because it seems to me it's it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that mm -hmm. that, uh, that there's a new frontier. So, what, what, why, why is there friction, particularly particularly in America, where you where you would think that you are very much frontier, a frontier nation. So we've not seen a lot of resistance uh, to our idea. It seems to be one of those situations where everyone assumed someone else had already thought of it or tried it. And the idea has been in most people's heads when we talk, oh, NASA does that or Space Force will do that. But then once they stop for a second and realize, wait a minute, NASA's ostensibly exploring, Space Force is ostensibly defending. What falls in the middle? We don't want it just being Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They don't even want that. Um, and so who is that third entity that can provide some early stage capital through like development bank uh, sort of investments? Who uh, holds everything together with the integration as like a port authority? And where are the researchers that aren't rocket scientists, whether they're law and policy or uh, engineering work for space habitation? Um, there's, there's a need for this. And we've lumped it all into one organization. But in reality, this is the work of three or four government departments um, in normal domains. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll we'll break down. Yeah. Exactly. All the sort of key elements then of of yeah. of, of what that what that government departments would look like. I suppose. Yeah. And so the first one, and really the the biggest, is this space infrastructure development bank. So um, a lot of major countries have these development banks that do loans to the third world to build infrastructure. And the idea is that it's a, these are high risk loans, but they have real payoff uh, in terms of social and economic benefits. And this would be modeled similarly, where it would be a partnership between the government and private equity, where the government would assume the first 50% of risk, as well as paying out 50% uh, of the capital and really start investing in the wild, crazy, ambitious infrastructure projects that aren't economically viable right now, like space-based solar power. Um, 
it's just too heavy. But if it's done at a with a subsidized loan, all of a sudden it becomes a societal good where we can use that in disaster relief zones 10, maybe even 20 years sooner. Um, so that's the first part is this development bank. The second is the uh, spaceport authority. Uh, much like the uh, there's aviation administrations for most countries, this would integrate the uh, space traffic management, the space launch, debris management, and the logistical integration. Um, at least in the U.S., uh, and I assume it's it's similar uh, over yonder. The port authorities are these quasi-governmental departments that basically provide a harbor framework for companies to set up in. And this would be a similar structure where companies would essentially lease harbor space or port space. And uh, this authority would invest in space ports and the, the ancillary networks required. And the last element is this Center for Space Studies. Um, so there is a uh, Plenty of research being done on getting to space, on the hard sciences of space, but then what? Um, the policy review, the analytics of geopolitics, the law, um, and even some of the integration of advanced architecture and engineering. How do we bring that all together? Because for one, most of these people don't talk to each other, um, whether just because they're working in their silo or because there's professional rivalry, how do we bring that all together? Um, and we see that being the Center for Space Studies. Well, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot <laughs> There's a lot to break down there, isn't there? Yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I mean, my initial thought on, on, on a lot of things like that is, how do you know that now is the time? And I, I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. if you'd had this lofty ambition 50 years ago, the technology and the, and the know-how just isn't there. Or, or and you know it, and now we know. Of course, it, it mm -hmm. wouldn't have been there until until now. So, what is what is it about now that feels like it's the good? It, it, it's the it's the time for us to be thinking about these particular things. Yeah. So, in many ways, um, it's not the right time. You you mentioned decades ago. Um, it really we're late. Uh, for all intents and purposes. But as with anything, the initial frameworks that are set up whenever anything new starts, in this case space, tend to persist and we just add on to them until something goes wrong. And our, our pitch is NASA could keep going as it is for another five or 10 years. Um, space Force is standing up they are probably going to assume a lot of the slack that NASA's not. But is that what we want? We have an opportunity here where we are trying to recover from COVID. We have a new administration, whether it is a continuation of the Trump uh, time or uh, a Biden administration. Either way, it's a new Congress. And both parties have signaled a desire to increase infrastructure investment because it creates these sustainable jobs. And so if we're late for this concept and the sort of 
vehicle to get this moving is kind of agreement, even though the, I, not necessarily on the idea, but on the concept of investment uh, in infrastructure, we view that as being the salient point in the timing. So never letting a crisis go to waste. So to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the, the foundation is very much US based. So it's, it's, it's very much about well, or correct me if I'm wrong. It's very much about actually uh, uh, making sure that America or, or the United States stays ahead of ahead of the game. Is that right? So, Rather than seeing yourselves as as something like an Asgardia or somewhere like that, where where it's more lofty international kind of, or 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 even beyond international kind of uh, uh, ideals. Yours is much more of a sort of practical. How do we get America into space? So the short answer is yes, and I've, I've uh, learned in my time doing this, so it's better to answer the question first and then do the long-winded <laughs> talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, people seem to appreciate that. Um, so yes, we are US-focused in part because we view um, the US as being a natural leader in space and of the major space countries uh, it's the one we would prefer to remain the leader. Hmm. Um, however, one of the key tenets of this organization we're trying to get Congress to create, the Frontier Infrastructure Administration, one of its three tenets is to promote partnership. And that is across uh, academia, industry, and internationally. So um, whether it is a, the Japanese company, uh, Obayashi, that is planning to build a space elevator uh, or partnering with ESA to make uh, commoditized space launches a thing. We, we view everyone winning the more people get into space and the more sustainable space is. Um, that That's, uh, and I think I've told a handful of people, you know, we're, we're fine with partnering with anyone we're even fine accepting help from anyone who's not a communist. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, okay, so, so so yeah, so that so it is grounded. It 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 is grounded in kind of a, 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 well, I, I guess traditional American kind of ideals or or, or even Western Western ideas, yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Currently, what what's kind of you've seen as the sort of main challenges to start this. <laughs> pretty big ro ball rolling. Yeah. Um, I mean, the main challenge has been cutting through the noise in the election. Um, we have made a, um, a conscious effort to remain unconnected to any politician or political party, including not talking to, to any, because um, I mean, if there's one thing we've seen in America the past four years, it is doesn't matter if you have a good idea or not. It's who latched onto it first that determines whether it remains a good idea. And so if our proposal is looking to create nearly a million new jobs across the country, um, it doesn't matter if the wrong person latches on and says they love it and the other party ends up being in power. So um, really starting next week is when our political outreach uh, begins in earnest. Uh, and that's been the biggest challenge because instead of being able to 
really start from the beginning of going straight to the customer, in this case, the Congress, and saying, here's our proposal, what's your feedback, and go back and forth and iterate. We've been building this um, and only now are getting to do that process. What do, what do you think these elections will mean? What what do, you, what do you think the kind of political landscape stepping into it is going to be like? Yeah, so I... Uh, I messaged my team uh, Wednesday morning and said, um, "The as it stands, the results uh, look like they have taken our chances of success from inevitable to extremely likely. Uh, so they have decreased. And I say that only because there's not a clear party that swept everything. Um, had that happened, um, a adding our proposal on as an amendment is almost a, a foregone conclusion because for one, space has broad appeal. For two, um, infrastructure investment in general is a good uh, use of federal dollars and doing it in a space that is completely undeveloped, so to speak, gets you even better returns on your dollars. Um, so, but we still view this as extremely likely because of those reasons. Um, it just means there's going to be more legwork on our end talking to people instead of needing to get 15 or 20 key individuals on board. Now we just have to do 40. Um, and you know what? It's just 40 people um, because like that's just more Zoom calls, more in-person meetings um, and yeah. So I, I I kind of get the the feeling that what would help is if somewhere in say China there's there's the Chinese interplanetary podcast having a conversation with the Chinese equivalent of the Foundation for the Future yep. and 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 that would sort of wake everyone up and go uh, oh yeah we better do something about this is do you know if there is anything like this anywhere else in the world are, are, is is there somewhere in India is there someone in the United Arab Emirates or something like that doing a similar kind of project to this yeah so in uh, definitely in China they, they're very um, cohesive in how they're managing their space program um, and uh, we do see them proposing or actually doing research in most areas of infrastructure that we're, we've identified as important. And that's definitely something we uh, are highlighting, whether it's China's plans to build space-based solar power, uh, habitation on the moon, et cetera. Um, all of those are key talking points, um, depending on who in Congress or the military we're talking to. Um, and that that unfortunately is a necessary talking point because in many ways it does feel like a competitive venture and we need to be able to say yeah not only is this a good idea but they're doing it too and ahead of us um and so that that is definitely part of it um in some cases even countries um as small as Luxembourg with their um, space law and UAE with their uh, new development proposals in space are further along than the US. And that is something we uh, are deploying as talking points. But um, the sort of look of a cohesive, almost whole of 
whole of country effort to treat spaces infrastructure, um, I, I've not seen. Okay. But it, it does yeah. seem natural. Um, yeah. I mean, China would definitely have an advantage there, wouldn't they? Because they're, they're so much more centralized anyway in their entire yeah. approach, just by the nature of, yeah, their, yeah. Uh, of their system. Um, well, before we let's let's not get bogged down in in politics. So, so let's. Uh, I've noticed that you, you you've already said it a couple of times. You've said space based solar power, and you've all, also said the space elevator. So, uh, there there they seem to be a couple of projects that you're behind. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yeah what, what, your involvement with those sort of ideas? Yeah, those are two. Um, two of the projects um, we've identified as being the sorts of projects that are natural fits for this frontier uh, administration um, where they have massive benefits to society and economically, but there's not a clear path to them being viable uh, for private equity to fund. So um, whether we see space-based solar power being a much easier lift, both in terms of dollars and uh, actual initial operating capacity, but even a space elevator, um, whether the downside of it failing is we don't have a space elevator. Trying and failing means we establish a network of advanced material foundries and research institutes in a lot of these nanoparticle materials that are good for virtually everything, whether it's single crystal graphene, carbon nanotubes, um, hexagonal boron, like these are super expensive to make now. And realistically, you can retrain most blue collar um, factory or industrial workers into those jobs if they're unemployed. And now all of a sudden they have a job for life because that's transferable almost anywhere in the world. So um, we were, I was told early on, don't hang your hat on this space elevator thing because <laughs> better yeah. men than you have tried and failed. And my answer was, I don't care if it's turtles. I don't care how we get into space. We can pile up turtles because it's turtles all the way down. That's what's holding us up. So why not <laughs> so, just flip it? <laughs> yeah, just flip it. And the point is, get to space reliably, cheaply, and in the most boring way possible. We don't think how a box is shipped across the world. Where it's like, nope, I left it outside my door and it showed up where we're supposed to. Um, and that's what we want for space. Uh, a space elevator captures the attention and there's a lot of good imagery around it. Um, but at the end of the day... Um, there's a better way let's do the better way um yeah yeah i mean obviously this this plays into because the one thing obviously the states have a massive lead on and i would say you know to the point now where elon musk's spacex has essentially it is the rocket industry mm -hmm. <laughs> you know in the last few years he's 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 absolutely disrupted that industry yeah, yeah. and and it looks like you know how does that fit into to, to you know how do you yeah, well, you know, what's what's the relationship between the foundation and and Musk, Bezos, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So we view them as uh, so the relationship is not there. Um, they're welcome to join us if they want. Um, but the 
our view is that we're trying to create rail transport to space and they're doing airmail. Um, what we want is never going to replace their, their rockets. And in many cases, it's going to augment their capability, whether it's with traffic management, debris mitigation, or just investing in more spaceports. Um, so we, we view that as actually increasing the need for rockets and what they're working on. Um, but also the, the more people are looking at space and talking about it and trying things, the more opportunity there is for those scale of people the, the Musks and Bezos and um, Bransons of the world to be able to innovate further and throw money at these other fledgling ideas. Yeah, so talking, so fledgling ideas, I think the, probably the best way to get my, my, my head around exactly where, where you see everything going is, is for you to describe, yeah, that I guess the next 20 or 30 years, a decade by decade, how you yeah. see it unfolding and, and, and the, the foundation's place within that. Yeah. So we, the, the plan is 2021, the uh, U.S. Frontier uh, Infrastructure Administration is funded by uh, US Congress, um, 10 billion a year for five years, after which point uh, it'll be mandated to be self-sufficient and operated as a quasi uh, private corporation. Um, over the first five years of its life, the investments are largely gonna be in quick return sort of projects, the advanced material foundry networks, the spaceport networks, the uh, space manufacturing hubs, um, and also some that we don't necessarily need right now, but are easy, relatively, uh, wins like out-of-orbit GPS navigation. So NASA's done work on pulsar-based uh, navigation receivers. If you don't have to launch GPS satellites, which are billions of dollars, and all you have to do is create a receiver and algorithm to receive pulsar signals, it's that's a cheap way to uh, dramatically improve everybody's lives as soon as they leave orbit. Um, and so, really, that first four or five years is the is a base setting for the materials, the um, administration, and um, the, the skeleton of um, whether it is manufacturing hubs in geo or uh, commercial uh, space station um, investments as you know, US government being an anchor tenant. And then from five to 10 years, that's when we see uh, a breakout. Um, the, our, our pitch is we can have a Pathfinder um, car riding a space elevator ca uh, cable by the end of this decade. Um, and I mean, we went to the moon using a, a calculator and a prayer. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. It's impossible. Uh, it's ambitious. And it'll remain all three of those until it's not. And then everyone will say it was inevitable. And uh, so 
it's uh, it's that five to ten year mark that the space-based solar power uh, starts coming online with an initial operating capacity for use in emergencies. Um, the the uh, elevator system starts um, work, and even if work is just self-reinforcing, um, it's still there, and it's this icon that it was done. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I obviously, <laughs> having done the podcast for a, a few years now, I, I know the arguments against the the, the kind of. The, the, the main arguments against space eleva- elevator have always been yeah. have, have been a yeah the materials required even with nanotubes they have to be they have to be perfect apparently for it to to sort of be a to be a, vi- yeah. a viable um, space elevator but but also the danger of the cable snapping and and wrapping itself around the earth but the the one that I found very interesting recently is this idea that if Elon Musk can can make Starship work. Then it's actually cheaper. Uh, it's a cheaper form of getting stuff pound for pound up into space uh, than than the elevator is. Uh, is what? How do you normally address all, all three of those kind of major concerns about things like the space elevator? Yeah. So the first, uh, the material one is yes, it does need to be as close to perfect um, as probably possible to be. Uh, well, just to get it that long. Um, and our, our view is yes. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, right now the issue we can make, for instance, single crystal graphene, it can be made roll to roll in a continuous roll. Nobody makes it very long because you don't need it very long, but we, we can do it. Um, so, but the problem is it's fairly slow. It's a handful of meters, an hour which would take a long time to make the cable. Um, so our, our view is the problem's not the material because yeah, if it's not perfect, well, we can iterate on it. The, the problem is making it long enough. Um, the, the second issue with the, the cable snapping and um, damaging um, people and, and the like. Um, yeah, that, that is a concern. Um, depending on where it snapped, um, it, it could become a problem for the most part. If it snapped, the anchor at the top is going to pull everything up and out. Um, and it would probably damage a handful of satellites on its way out. Um, on the downside, on the below the break, um, the materials light, uh, the, in, like single crystal graphene, the entire 100,000 kilometer roll would be about 77 kilograms. So, yeah, it would fall, (laughs) but it would also not be terribly damaging unless it hits you on the head. Our plan is to base it um, in uh, the Pacific along the equator. And so there is a lot of play there um, in, uh, in safety margins around where the tether would be based. Um, and the third point about the cost, um, yes, they the, the plan from SpaceX and others is to get the cost of rockets down, um, at least to orbit several hundred dollars a pound. Um, we have 
we've seen as low as uh, just over $100 a pound. The space elevator powered by space-based solar, we think could do it for about that price per ton of cargo and about a dollar a pound per person. So an order of magnitude or more less than, than they're most optimistic. And on the other side, you don't have to ride a modified nuclear missile to orbit, which is handy if you want, you know, <laughs> you don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm 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 usually a, a super mega optimistic person when it comes to things like when it comes to technology and science, but the elevator one I, I have to say is 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 so hard for me to 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 really get fully behind because because we've seen nothing like it. We, we you know yeah, as yeah. an as an it's would you I e I would have thought that with a technology like that we would have seen some we we will see moon elevators and. Yes. Maybe even Mars elevators before we attempt the the Earth one. Almost certainly. Um, we we have been working. One of our proposals is to do a moon elevator as a demonstrator. Um, ideally, as fast out of the gate as possible, because is from what we can tell, talking with. Um, whether it's uh, the Space Elevator Consortium or a Liftport group, um, that they could theoretically do that with current technology. Um, and so that, that would be um, no doubt one of the first ones. And I, I, I agree with you on the viability of the Space Elevator. It is almost certainly not going to work. When it doesn't, we try again, because we to do it the first time, we will have had to create this network of advanced materials fabrication, hundreds of thousands of people employed in those, and all of the material that can't be used for this elevator because it's not good enough can be repurposed for everything from airplane skins to smartphones. So it's as close to a no-lose proposition as we can get, again, so long as we don't hit anybody on the head with the tether when it falls. Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I, I was about to sort of, yeah, re, sort of re, readdress that point because you, you, you obviously said that quite uh, earlier on that you weren't, <laughs> that you'd already been advised not to hang your hat on the space elevator. But the, so it's more about, the ambition of doing a moonshot project like that, that, that yeah. basically you've kind of got nothing to you lose because the worst case scenario is you end up with, you end up with an infrastructure that's insanely useful anyway. Yeah. Which is kind of how I see Apollo. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, you, no, you, yeah. yeah you, you went to the moon, but for no real purpose <laughs> other than the fact that you've been left with something that's generated far more money than it cost in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And the idea really is to, like Apollo was this camping trip, now it's time to um, create the ability to actually move to space and do house hunting and do no no kidding construction. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that the space elevator is a necessity or something that would be great to have? Because presumably, we've only got to the first 10 years, presumably the, the next 
decade after that and the decade after that you have a kind of vision of what then happens once you've once you've built this infrastructure yeah and so no the space elevator is not necessary what's necessary is making the getting to space boring um turning it into the same sort of easy process as new york to london where it all of the time and energy of workers going to space can be spent innovating in space and so the 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 2030s and on we see the um, explosion of uh, asteroid-based mining, the um, development of the Lagrange points, both as manufacturing hubs and um, refueling stops for follow-on transit. Um, Elon's uh, plan to settle Mars uh, is supported by this. One of the things that we've been throwing around is, is there a role for government in investing in a sort of uh, subway system between here and um, Mars, a, a Aldrin cycler sort of system. Um, and um, it's our view that yes, but how that happens, uh, we're not entirely clear. Um, and the sequencing of that uh, isn't clear. Um, but by the 2030s, we there is no reason why we shouldn't have hundreds, if not thousands of people living in space, treating it probably like a deep sea drilling rig where it's a temporary nine month to a year thing, but it's, they're living there and it's permanent habitation. Um, there are a lot of challenges to that, but so there's a lot of challenges <laughs> yeah. to uh, sailing a boat anywhere or yeah. going on a walk. <laughs> yeah, I know, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, the the real end piece. It, am I right in saying really that the foundation then is, is you've got all these different efforts because you've got the efforts of the Zubrins and the Musks, et cetera, et cetera, that have been talking about all these things, and you've got the, you've got the ambitions of uh, asteroid mining companies, and you've got the, you know, the ambitions of NASA and and China and everyone else, and you've got yeah. all these ambitions. But would you say that the foundation then is is much more of a kind of is sitting in American government and actually sort of saying we've got to be serious about all this and be more focused, so it it becomes a kind of focal point for all those ambitions that 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 at the moment for want of a better word floating out untethered yeah yeah we are proposing this infrastructure administration be that sort of capstone that linchpin between um the government and private space where whether it's from regulation to investment, there is a single focal point for private interests to come to, and then for government to feed into. Um, there's, there's no reason Space Force needs to be coordinating launches with 10 different entities. This, there's no reason NASA needs to be doing the same for proposals that are completely unrelated to exploration. Um, so the, their budget gets tied up with things like the International Space Station. If that's freed up because that 
it's commercialized. The government remains an anchor tenant um, in a civil manner instead of using our exploration agency. Um, now government can can be more focused in what it's doing and stick to the missions assigned rather than just kind of holding it together with tape. You've, you've spotted the kind of the missing ingredient of, of how you get this change through that I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, isn't that what NASA do? And then, and then just like you said, right at the beginning, I'm thinking, no, no, it's not what NASA do at all. Is it? So I, 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 yeah, I, I kind of get it. Um, blue marble week. What's, what's blue marble week? We know, we don't know what needs to be done in space. Um, we, our, our vision is that we need space access, we need space sustainment, we need space support. Um, what those exact projects are, um, we know some, but we have, we, there is far more than that we don't know. And Blue Marble Week, uh, at least for its initial running, is a shameless crowdsourcing uh, attempt. So, um, in January, when the U.S. Congress convenes, we will be going to them with proposals for the larger infrastructure administration. And Blue Marble Week is a chance for companies to, to present a mix of TED Talk and Silicon Valley pitch, where the premise is you have four years of dedicated funding for your project. And we have a list of infrastructure-related topics uh, in access, sustainment, or support. How does your project move ahead? You know, don't tell us that it's all unicorns and rainbows after four years. If it's just you've pushed the ball further, then you've pushed the ball further. It may be that it's still useful, but condense this down into a short talk, a short set of slides. We don't care about your math. We don't care about your physics. We care about what kind of results can you expect. We will then take that and walk it into the halls of power and say, this is what you can get for this amount of money. We want 10 billion over five years. But if you bump that up, you know, by this much, here's what you can get extra. You want to cut it? Okay, this is what has to be cut. Yeah. So how on earth do you get the credibility to to do that? I mean, particularly these days, it seems, you know, it's it's very, there's so many people vying for so much money and everyone's had their fingers burnt in Kickstarters and everything else. How the <laughs> yeah. hell do you, how the hell do you build up the credibility to say, look, this, this is what I'm, this is what I'm telling you. This is, um, how about it? I mean, how, how, how do you, how do you, yeah, you know, what, what, what <laughs> why would it, the, 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 I guess the big question is how, how does the foundation get credit, that kind of credibility to be able to, to make those claims? Um, so for one, we are very upfront about being, uh, the open, honest and transparent, um, that we aren't the smartest ones. We aren't the ones with all solutions. And, um, we are just the ones that are in the right place at the right time and want to connect people so we can build something bigger. Um, the, the credibility thing is currently and will be even more um, an issue. Um, it, 
the everybody wants to sell something. Uh, we have seen that uh, throughout this COVID uh, time. And also just as we're starting up the foundation, uh, I probably get 20 calls a day asking uh, if I want to buy something related to <laughs> a small business, something or other. Um, but we have, we have committed to being completely transparent. Our, um, all of our registration documents are posted on our website. Uh, all of our expenditures and our planned expenditures are updated weekly on our website. Um, none of, all of us want to be involved in this frontier administration when it's created. But at the end of the day, that's, we're here to move the ball forward and if we're not, we're not. Um, and so at this point, most of our credibility comes from the humility and openness uh, that we've, we've demonstrated. And the rest comes as we build the team of people who put their uh, faith and trust in the idea. Yeah. So, where have you been finding that? Where have you been finding the team from? And, and is there still space for people to get involved? Yeah. Um, so the the team um, finding the team mostly um, looking through whether it's news postings or research articles about these different projects, everything from uh, space-based solar to X-ray navigation, and we just reach out um, whether it's me, whether it's um, one of the team, and we let them know here's what we're doing, here's our plan, can we talk to you more? Um, and nine times out of 10, that's been how we've connected. Uh, the rest has been referrals from those people. But um, the how can people be involved? Um, the number one thing is talking about what we're doing. It doesn't have to be about us, but the idea that space is normal is only hard because we're not there. Um, that is the number one thing we need. Yeah, we need donations to keep the lights on and we need people who know how to do, whether it's the policy, the engineering, the social media. But at the end of the day, every person talking about what we're doing is one less person we have to target with ads. And so that's what we want. Um, and so they can reach out uh, on the website at climb to space, uh, climb the number two dot space. And I mean, we've had people reach out and say, hey, I think your space elevator idea is horrible. Here's all the reasons. <laughs> and um, that's caught like that's th some of them have been good points. Uh, and that's how we've come up with answers to concerns people have. Um, we wouldn't know to come up with the answers or go back to the engineers unless people asked or commented. And so um, it's not that there's no bad comments, but most of them are useful. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you two frivolous questions that I ask yeah. every single guest to, to, to wrap this up. Um, do you have a, uh, a space related hero that, uh, that inspired you to get into all of this? The, the father of the space elevator idea. Solkowski. Um, I'm a huge fan of his attitude that why, why can't we do this? 
Um, let's, uh, of, of course we need this. We have, you know, towers in cities. So we want to go to space. So of course we just build a tower all the way. Let's just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Salkovsky is such a visionary. Um, and he was treated like Tesla, um, sort of badly. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah, n- none of those Russian dudes had a particularly nice time, has to be said. Final question. Do you have a, a space song for our space song playlist that we have? The only thing I can think of is Rocket Man, and I do, I'm not a fan. You can give me any piece of music. It doesn't even need to be space-related, because it could be a piece of music that you listen to when you think about space. Or Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I listened to Cocky by Kid Rock. Nice. <laughs> well, I tell you that I te- I'm pretty certain that's not on the playlist so far. So there you go. <laughs> it's going to go on. It's going to go on. And everyone's going to say, what's that on there? And I'll go, well, you have to listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, thanks very much for, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, and, uh, it's a really interesting idea and, and maybe it'll inspire someone to do the UK version over here as well. Or, there you go. or, or the German version. There we go. <laughs> the interplanetary podcast is alive there, there you go chris fantastic uh, that was tim Crisman. fascinating stuff and, man uh, i must admit i massively admire his chutz for there i remain very dubious about space elevators although i do like the whole idea of putting money into things that are very very speculative mm. because you know you're going to get all these technological payoffs from it yeah yeah, absolutely. But I'd say but, it's incredibly ambitious, yeah, I but think I think, you know, I'm, I'm the same as you. I'm a little bit sceptical about the whole possibilities there. Chris, if people have enjoyed the podcast, where can they go? I don't say go f- themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, what I would do is I, was open, I would open one of my many devices, uh, go to my browser and type in interplanetary.org.uk. And if they wanted to get even more involved in the journey, they can go to www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary and become a Spodcat. Oh, we love you, Spodcats. Big times. The Spodcats are legendary. A couple of the stories, of course, came through the Spodcats this week. Fantastic. On the Discord channel. Oh, what are you doing this week, Chris? Uh, well, I've got a few things going on. I'm uh, about to go out uh, for some food because uh, the, the sort of lockdown is going to become a little bit more... Uh, in Oslo from tomorrow so we're going to just go and enjoy a little bit of food and drink um, and then tomorrow I'm going to record the first episode of my new podcast it's called Jamie and Chris's <laughs> Jamie and Chris's space podcast <laughs> Amazing. Fe- featuring Julio no <laughs> but it's, it's actually called uh, the, the best movies start outside which is a uh, based around my my granddad Harry's theory that the best films started with exterior shots. Um, So I'm going to aim to prove or disprove my granddad's quite a tenuous theory. So it's basically a film podcast. (laughs) Excellent. I'll be recording the fifth episode of of my new podcast, Recovering Queen, tomorrow. Ah. And then we're going to start releasing them. You're you're Queen Daft, you. Big time. Queen (laughs) Daft. So we're going podcast mental at the moment. This is yeah. this is great. I like it's it. It's an exciting time it. for potties. Well, can't wait to hear the pod. Well, thank you very much. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think that wraps it up. It's been a long episode. Otherwise. It has, yeah. It's been very enjoyable as always, Matthew. Bye-bye, Spodcats. Bye, Spodcats. Bye, Spodcats. Bye, Spodcats. Bye, Spodcats. Bye, Spodcats.